Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well. How are you today, Tim? I'm excellent, Lance. Thank you for asking. Anytime. And today we have a friend of the show on the airwaves. His name is Chris. He does a podcast called Circle City Crime. It's about the Burger Chef murders in Speedway, Indiana. And he's branched out to some other cases as well all in that same geographical area. Yeah, totally cool guy. Someone who has dug very deeply into this case, into the Burger Chef murders. The uh, four people who were killed in the Burger Chef murders were essentially kids. We have Jane Freach, who was 20. Daniel Davis was 16. Mark Flemons was 16. Ruth Ellen Shelton was 18. The circumstances of their murders is bizarre. It's unnerving. It gets under your skin. It's a very uncomfortable case to cover. So I give him a lot of props for taking this on. Yeah, it's a great show and really interesting crime. Obviously tragic, but um, you can listen to uh, his show. There are links in the show notes. And before we throw it to the interview, just want to let everyone know that we are going to CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando, Florida. Hopefully we'll have a, a live panel or something to do, but we will be on Podcast Row causing a real scene. That's right, Tim. We will once again be the bells of the ball. We will be in Orlando, Florida at CrimeCon on May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at the World Trade Center Marriott. If you want to buy tickets, you got to do it now because they're going fast. I'm surprised they're not sold out already. You can use our promo code CRAWLSPACE20. That's all one word, CRAWLSPACE20. Go to CrimeCon.com to register and use our promo code. You'll get 10% off your standard pass, and you can talk to us on Podcast Row about your passion case, or you can talk to us at the bar about pretty much anything you want. We'll be there for you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Chris. Welcome to Crawl Space. Chris of Circle City Crime, what is going on? Hey, guys. Good to be on with you. Good to be talking to you. Fantastic to be speaking with you as well. Circle City Crime has a lot of episodes. How many episodes do you have right now? I think it's around 40. Am I am I uh close? Uh yeah, we're we're pushing 40. Our season 1 was 26 episodes and then we did we took some time to cover some more recent cases here in the Indianapolis area just a single episode uh through the holiday season and then we're about 6 deep into our uh second season. Well, thank you so much for coming on this evening. I know it's a, a little bit outside of our normal recording hour, but we wanted to make sure that we got this interview in with you because what you talk about is this uh, case from 1978. That's what your uh, podcast is primarily about, and that is the Burger Chef murders, which I think is gaining some traction out there in the true crime community. Can you tell us a little bit about the the case and, and how you got involved with this. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the case that spurred us to get started and the case we spent the entirety of 2019 investigating and reporting on and uh, that our entire season one is is built around. And the way that we got involved with the case is that we simply moved to the area where it took place. We've always lived in Indiana. We're lifelong Hoosiers, but this crime began specifically in the area of Speedway, Indiana. And for not a lot of people that, that that may not know that that's an area of Indianapolis. It's actually a suburb of Indianapolis. 
where the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is located. So that big race you hear about every May, the Indianapolis 500, it's it's ran there. It's right down the road. And uh, so we moved to the area. And as we started trying to learn the history of the area, I actually heard an episode uh, from some friends of yours, Nick and the captain over at True Crime Garage. Um, the Burger Chef murders was the first case they ever covered. I wouldn't call them friends, though. Don't uh, don't use that, uh, <laughs> that term too loosely. A little, uh, little presumptuous, but continue. <laughs> some uh, some guys you shared the mic with <laughs> over there at True Crime. I, I don't know if they shared it either. I mean, they're acquaintances. <laughs> we know them. We've heard of them. I can see, <laughs> yeah, we, we... I can see I can see Captain being a bit of a mic hog. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I you know I, I like you guys a lot. I like listening to them a lot. And uh, the uh, I hadn't I wasn't aware of this case when we first moved to the area. It was about seven years ago, and I listened to their first episode, and they were mentioning locations that I was familiar with, and you know like the local high school where one of the students or one of the victims was a student, and uh, the road that the restaurant was on, which has a, a unique name. And I just thought, well, that that sounds pretty close to home. So I Googled it and I found Facebook groups and I, I ended up going down the rabbit hole and, and spent a couple years just kind of peripherally interested in it. And as I learned more and more and talked to people more and more, I realized that a lot of people have stories that haven't been made part of the really public narrative of this case. And I thought, I understand podcasts a little bit. You know, maybe that'd be a good way to compile this information somewhere where people can go find it and try to find the most accurate information, some extra nuggets they've never heard before. And then what ended up happening is people heard about it and they started coming to us with new stories and, and it, it really became an investigation. Oh, that's really interesting. And you you didn't even intend for that to happen. Your primary objective was to just get the uh, the word out there, get the information out there. That was the biggest thing. I, I, you know, in the back of my mind, we're all curious people. You know, I'm all. If you're into true crime podcasts, you are always interested in doing a little sleuthing. But yeah, the the major goal was just compiling the information. But as soon as something came across our our screen that let us know, hey, there might be something we're digging into, I didn't hesitate to act on it. I, you know, it's like I actually talked to Sarah Kalen uh, last week, and she said that. Don't let any cop fool you. Half the reason they get into the job is just because they're curious and nosy, and, and that kicked in for me too. Right. Yeah that <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, I, I think uh, curious and nosy. Uh, you know, you could say like inquisitive. You can say that they they have a uh, desire to uh, you know to to find the truth in things. So um, yeah, I think it all is sort of in the same basket. There, uh, it's a pretty pretty colorful way to put it. Um, now, when when you said that that the information came in, uh, who do you vet this information with? Once you before we get into the details of the case, I'm just curious. When you get the information, who do you run that by? How do you how do you vet that? So we did get the assistance from some people who have been behind the scenes digging into this case for quite a while, um, and who had direct contact with some former investigators. And we were actually to make able to make some contacts of our own with former investigators on this case. There's been a lot of them over the last 42 years, and uh, but unfortunately, current investigators aren't so willing to talk about the case or to let you know if you bring them information to let you know how seriously they're taking it or what they think it might mean to them. They they hold their thoughts on all that stuff pretty close to the vest. So we're generally pretty careful. 
in what we release. Um, I, I think kind of like any journalist, if, if you hear something, you know, try to come up with multiple sources that say the same thing independently. That's been kind of a, a goal of mine, um, whether that be law enforcement or just simply people who lived in the area that I know have personal connections to per- people and places that can kind of validate some of the information. We've talked to former employees of the Burger Chef restaurant, um, employees that were supposed to be working that night. Now, uh, tell us about the case. What uh, What is this case all about? I know Lance has, uh, has been passionate about this case before, um, and he was the first time I had heard about it. And so it was nice to meet you in Chicago and to, to have a conversation about this case. Uh, but um, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So, you know, to break down the basics of the case, it was September 17th, 1978. That was a Friday. Uh, Burger Chef Restaurant was a large chain of fast food restaurants. Some of your listeners may be aware uh, they had pretty much were completely defunct by 1996, though. Um, so I never actually personally ate in a Burger Chef, but at the time in 1978, they were the second largest fast food chain in the country. So these things were all over the place. Um, they employed, a, they actually started here in Indianapolis. So there were a lot of locations here. A lot of teens and young adults were employed at, at Burger Chef. So that was the really striking thing about what I'm about to tell you is a lot of people had that sense of it could have been my kid. It could have been anybody. Um, so what happened was they were closing four four of the employees were closing the restaurant on that Friday night and they closed at eleven o'clock. There was a Dunkin' Donuts next door and two witnesses from the Dunkin' Donuts, one of them was an employee, they decide and, and her boyfriend, they decided to take a walk around outside. There's been speculation they might have been out smoking a joint or, you know, really irrelevant to to the case, but just they were they were outside and they happened to come across two guys who kind of spooked them, told them they needed to get out of the area. Um, they'd actually been, uh, there'd been some vandalism in the area and kind of warned them off, even asked them for ID, which they didn't present to the two guys. And they put the time of this at around 1121. But these witnesses also say that everything still seemed normal over at the Burger Chef. They could see into it. Um, nothing weird seemed to be going on. They even report that the assistant manager's car was still in the parking lot, which a big part of the mystery in this case is that it went missing at the same time the victims did. So sometime between 11.21 and we've been, the best we've been able to put it at is 12.05, some amount of people, um, most investigators believe it was at least two or three, came to the Burger Chef, took all, came through the back door, took all four victims and $581 in cash. No one saw it happen as far as we can tell. And, and that's where it's a little tough to tell this story because some things we've uncovered kind of takes it off in different tangents. There actually was a guy who came forward and says he was at the Dunkin' Donuts and he saw it happen. But at the same time, we don't know how reliable his testimony is because he was in jail and might have been just trying to get some leniency. And I've interviewed the guy and he actually says now that that's exactly what was going on. That he was trying to get leniency? Right, that he was trying to get... Um, you know, some kind of break on his sentence, and he was being pr- hounded pretty hard by police uh, to give him something because he had apparently, after he got arrested, um, one of the victim's brothers was also in jail at the same time, and he had kind of made a smart aleck comment that caused a fight between the two of them. So that's when police got onto him that he might know something, but like I say, that didn't happen until 1981. So back to the night of the actual crime, what happened was an employee of the Burger Chef had actually been on a date with another employee, and the female employee he was on the date with had switched shifts with one of the victims. 
And this male employee had said, after my date, I'll drop her off and I'll come back and I'll help you guys with the cleanup. Uh, so he arrives around 12.05, goes around to the back of the building, finds it a little odd that the back door is about three inches open, but it doesn't you know, set off any major alarm bells. He goes ahead, he enters the restaurant, and that's when it starts to get weird. There's an empty trash can by the door, there's a coat on the floor, you know, all the lights are on, all the fans are going, but there's nobody in the restaurant. Um, he proceeds through the restaurant, he finds the two cash drawers on the floor, but still to the front of the restaurant, to the manager's office, and there's there's nobody there. His first move is actually to call a former manager who he thinks might personally have some idea where they are if they've taken off on their own. And that manager says, no, nothing like that happened. You need to call the police. So he calls the Speedway Police Department. They come. They get the store manager involved. He shows up. They all kind of look over things. And, and this employee, he was kind of a quiet guy back then. We've actually had the pleasure of speaking with him several times since we started this. But he admits he was a pretty quiet kid back then. And, and he didn't speak up to kind of tell the police how weird he thought it was. So unfortunately, the Speedway police immediately assume the kids took the money and they've gone off partying and, and they'll come back and they'll deal with them when they come back. But wasn't their money still there? Yeah, so that's one of the really interesting things is there was a little over $100 in coins still left in the safe. So I don't think enough gets gets made of that um, because one of the, the you know, the major prevailing theory has for a long time been that this was a robbery gone wrong. And potentially one of the robbers was recognized by one of the victims. So that's why it turned odd and violent. But I don't under, I, I know it was coins and that could be hassle maybe to carry out, but still we're talking more than a hundred dollars. And then there was also cash and valuables left with the victims. And to, to skip forward just a little bit, um, all four of these victims were found in a field in another County, 25 miles South of Speedway. Um, they were found two of them shot, one of them stabbed and one of them beaten to death about 36 hours later. And how far away from the uh, Burger Chef was this? So it's about 24, it's a little over 24 miles, and it's going to take around 30 to 40 minutes to drive. It's mostly a, a highway drive, you know, 55, 60 miles an hour, typical speed limit. Would have been little to no traffic at that time of night uh, at, at either location, either in Speedway, in, on the highways on the way, or at the final destination in Johnson County. It was actually a pretty rural field. It's now developed into a, a nice neighborhood. But there were maybe five or six houses in the area. It was a lot of wooded field at that time. Was there any strategic thought into why the the killers uh, hit the burger chef at that time of night? Was it was it like more money than usual or anything like that? So what we looked at was there were a lot of burger chefs being robbed in the area at the time. We kind of got to separate it into categories. So one category of robberies have very different MOs. Um, a lot of times it was a manager being caught as they were taking a deposit to the bank, but it was one individual getting a manager either, you know, at the night deposit box or at their car or walking down the sidewalk. But it was generally that nighttime when a deposit was about to be made situation when the, and kind of like you said, when you would expect maybe the most money was in house. There was also a crew of guys from Johnson County, which is the county where the bodies were found, that were robbing convenience stores and fast food restaurants and were specifically partial to Burger Chef. And it seems like because what I've been told is Burger Chef had no 
safety regulations back then. So there, there was no, there was no system in play. Like, like after the crime happened, they were told, don't take the trash out at night, take it out right before sundown. And then whatever's left, tie the bag up. We'll take it out to the dumpster in the morning. But those things weren't in place until after the murders. So these guys had a very clear MO of going through the back door. They would go in, they would tie up their, their victims. They would take the money. They would take valuables. Uh, they would force their way in with a shotgun. Um, and then once they had all the money and valuables, they would take off. They didn't. They they weren't overly violent. Obviously, holding someone at gunpoint, robbing someone is a, is a violent act. And is it presumed that those thieves are the killers too? So there are a couple members of law enforcement that believe they were the killers. The current investigator in charge, I, I believe that's his primary theory, although he's a little tight-lipped about it, and his predecessor definitely believes that that is that, that they are the ones involved. I know that you briefly mentioned um a couple of the victims but can you take a moment to name each victim and how old they were uh at the time of their death? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the, the opportunity to do that. That was a big part for us is making sure we try to tell their stories. Um so we have uh Ruth Shelton. She was 17 at the time, a uh, local high school student. Um and this was the one that first caught my attention when I was listening to True Crime Garage. She went to a high school called Northwest High School, which at the time I lived just down the road from. Um I've had a chance to communicate with her sister, learn a little bit about Ruth outside of just what the newspapers had to say and nobody ever has anything negative to say about her. Nice, sweet, creative, ambitious. Um, she had actually just changed jobs from that Dunkin' Donuts next door to the burger chef, Mark Flemons. Uh, he was a uh, 17-year-old and went to Speedway High School. His family had just moved from the more inner city area of Indianapolis to this suburban area of Speedway. Big family, seven siblings, I believe it was. Um, always described as a kid with a big smile, nice, you know, neat dress, um, really kind of trying to make his way now that his family had, had made that move. This was his first job, uh, was this job at the Burger Chef. There was Daniel Davis. He was 16 at the time. Um, and he was a sophomore in high school, I believe, at Decatur Central High School. Again, these kids all were good kids, bright kids, had had good futures. Um, he wanted to join the Air Force, just like his older brother had, um, was an avid photographer. And then the assistant manager on duty that night was 20-year-old Jane Freet. Um, she had worked for the Burger Chef organization for three years, had moved up the ranks, and had just about four months earlier taken this position as the assistant manager at the Speedway location. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. And were they all found together? So they were found mostly together. Ruth and Daniel were found shot three times execution style near a lane that ran through the field where they were found. Okay. Uh, just to interrupt you real quick, uh, I always hear, and well, we always hear execution style. What does that mean? So in this case, they were, it's presumed laid on the ground. I guess there's some possibility they were kneeling and fell forward but I think everybody pretty much works on the belief that they were laid on the ground and shot in the neck, back of the neck, back of the head, and um, one in the side of the face, um, you know, as they must have tried to, to move or react into a previous gunshot. So there, that's, so, so you're absolutely right. The, the term execution style, that's what gets, gets mentioned in the newspaper. And that's kind of the way we shorthand it in the podcast, but yeah, 
it was a and I take some time in the podcast to point out that you know I try not to be voyeuristic, but there was an a level of overkill, yeah, and too much violence here. If you're if you're just trying to kill somebody so they don't rat on you for robbing a restaurant, yeah. So they were shot three times each, right? And that was with a shotgun. No, I'm sorry. This was with a 38 caliber gun. Okay. Um, no shell casings were found, so it's believed to have been a revolver. So they had the shotgun and this revolver. So that's where, and and this is what's get what's get what gets tough is is the, it depends on who you think did this. Um, so the men who normally robbed the burger chefs, oftentimes they would carry a shotgun, but there's no evidence that a shotgun was present at this crime, just the 38 caliber revolver. So then you've got to wonder because the other two victims, Jane Freet was stabbed in the chest um, and the knife handle actually broke off um, and the knife blade was left in her chest and Mark Fleming, and she had ran um, about 75 yards from the area where Ruth and Daniel were shot. And then Mark Flemons had run nearly a hundred yards in the other direction, but he was found beaten to death. Um, and had actually, um, asphyxiated on his own blood. So positional asphyxiation, um, due to, to blood in his airways. And, but, but, the, but you make a good point or, or give me a good opportunity there to point out that it's said that they carried a shotgun. It said that one of the guys in this crew always had a shotgun. He, he was actually nicknamed the shotgun man. Yet there was no evidence that a shotgun was present. Was there anything else that was found at the scene that would suggest, uh, like a robbery gone bad or, or a drug deal gone bad or um, anything? So there's really no evidence that we've been made aware of uh, that that points one way or the other. I think the only thing they really have to work with are the locations of the two crime scenes and the ways in which they were killed. Um, now, I say that to say there is current current investigators are hinting at a piece of evidence that they feel could lead to answers, and and we hope it does. We don't know what it is. They're very tight-lipped about it, but it is something that they found at the scene where the four were killed, and they do believe they were all killed on site there at the field in Johnson County, and they've had it since day one. The investigators all through the years are quoted in the newspapers on several occasions as saying there's no physical evidence. There's no physical evidence to tie anyone to this case. So is this a DNA uh, thing that would they just found recently? Our belief is that what they're relying on is some new sort of testing to be able to test an item that they were previously unable to test. Although I've had it said to me that, you know, someone who believes that this piece of evidence is actually going to tie to the group of robbers made a comment of the, the sort that, you know, I can't believe investigators overlooked this piece of evidence all of these years. Well, if he feels they were overlooking it all of these years, you know, going all the way back to the time that the, the murders were committed, then I wonder if testing has anything to do with it or if it's just simply an, a new interpretation of old evidence. So we're waiting with a lot of anticipation and, and hand-wringing to find out uh, what that is and, and what the results are of any testing they are doing with it. What was the investigation like once the bodies were found? So so it was all pretty hectic from the very beginning. I mean, even going back to the, the Speedway Burger Chef location, like I said, the Speedway police assumed that it was petty embezzlement and that they would catch the kids at a later time. So they locked the restaurant up that night and then actually allowed the morning 
crew to come in and clean the restaurant of any potential evidence like fingerprints or hair when they started the next day's shift. So because at that point, right at the time those workers were coming in was just about the time they were realizing, oops, we've probably made a mistake because these kids never came home. Yeah. So they actually went back to the restaurant and restaged it, even to the point of refilling a, a drink that they had seen sitting on a counter to take crime scene photos. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah. So I've heard conflicting reports. It was told to me by a state police investigator who was on the case from the very beginning that they actually tried to pass those pictures off as being taken on that, that first night or at least early that morning because there would have been sunlight coming through the window. So, so I think early that morning. But one of the state police investigators looking at the photos noticed that there was still ice in the cup. And he said, hang on, there's no way that cup sits there all night and still has ice in it. So at that point, Speedway Police Department came clean about what they had done. So that's going to be a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's mishap number one. You know, part of me thinks that there might not have been much evidence for them to find. Um, it's thought that they first approached the at least one of the employees while he was outside taking the trash out. They may have never ventured into the building. Um, there was no signs of blood or major struggle. So there may not have been much, but it really sours people's opinions on how this case was handled because they didn't even take the opportunity to try to find out. So how did they get four employees to uh, a separate location? I mean, th this is uh, a completely different M.O. if it was those robbers with the shotgun, right? Those ones, as, as you said, they weren't really violent. Um, th this is a complete uh, botch job of a robbery or it was uh, an intended murder and it was made to look like a robbery. I, f I feel like it's either a uh, like a a bad copycat or it's those people, the, those original robbers, and they were just one of them or something was an employee at Burger Chef. So I have been through all of that and, and then some as, as possibilities I've tried to look into. And, and it's it's hard, you know. 42 years later, people have passed away, and there are people out there that are still scared to talk because they think they do know who was involved, and, um, you know, so it's, it's been tough, but I, I agree with what you say. This is a complete departure from, from MO. Now, what I will say, in fairness to the investigators who, who do believe that theory, is assistant manager Jane Freed had worked at several locations, and they believe that they had gone in that night. And Jane recognized one of the perpetrators, and that's when things changed. Is it possible? Sure. It's just it's just such a, a departure from, like you said, their typical MO. They had robbed over 20 other locations and locations that were a lot closer to their homes with more likelihood of being recognized. So, you know, I, I just find it hard to believe that that departure would have occurred in this location. I could really believe either, you know. I mean, I, th I think if a if a store like like a Burger Chef and and that's kind of like a like a McDonald's essentially comparable to something like that. Yeah, McDonald's. It, it actually was bought out by Hardee's, so okay. you yeah. Know, there's a there's a comparison there. Yeah. So I mean, if you're robbing something like that, it's got to be something you have pretty intimate knowledge with. And and you said they they went in through the back door. They were kind of maybe uh, creeping around at, at certain points. I mean. I think a lot of these robberies are inside jobs. So uh, 
I think I, I could see either scenario being uh, what's accurate, either a, a bad copycat gone wrong or this uh, those actual um, original robbers and, and one of them or something was recognized. Because when you take that 30,000-foot view, it's like it's not hard to, to connect them, right? There's, there's that many robberies of that specific kind of store, and then this one was also robbed. And, you know, obviously the circumstances ended up being uh, tragically different different but still there's strong similarities there yeah no i i certainly and and what, what first set them on that path is a really wild interesting story so but doesn't make it any less believable the victims were taken on a friday night they were found on sunday afternoon on saturday night there was a man in a bar in johnson county who uh who had been working with this group of robbers who started spouting off saying, oh, I know who did it. Those kids are going to be fine. And then the bodies are found the next day, and everybody at the bar starts calling the police and says, hey, this guy was mouthing off in the bar. You might want to look into him and see what he knows. Um, His response to police was, I shot my mouth off when I shouldn't. I don't know anything about it. I certainly wasn't involved in it. But just in case, here are the names of the guys that – that are doing the robberies in case you want to check them out. And he passed over the name of the people who were doing the robberies. Correct. And it sounds to me like he was spouting off, but there was probably some truth in what he was saying because they had never hurt kids before. Right. Exactly. They had. Right. Right. So I think he had no knowledge of whether or not they were going to the Speedway Burger Chef. Yeah. But I think he had reason to believe it could have been them. And yeah, absolutely. Like you said, their MO in the past had been tie people up, get the cash, get out of there. And he had no reason to believe they would have turned violent. One of the first things that I thought of when I heard about this case and read about it was what it would take to bring uh, all four of these these young adults to this area like over 20 miles away right how how far away was it it was like over 20 miles away you said right yeah it was between yeah it was between 24 and 25 miles okay so 24 25 miles away and so the thought experiment is is you rob the the burger chef something's gone wrong or something i don't know maybe something didn't go wrong maybe they were told that they could go and retrieve something with these people something had to have been extremely violent to get them 24 25 miles away or extremely convincing yeah a lot of people have had that thought um that that potentially someone told them they were going to take them to a party that's interesting where where a lot of people and people close to the victims will counter that is that the two victims Ruth Shelton and Daniel Davis and and, you, and and we all know kids can do things their parents don't know about and and kids can change their habits in the blink of an eye but they everybody feels that those two would not have been the type to shirk their responsibilities at at the restaurant that wasn't yet finished being cleaned up and to go off at a party when their parents were expecting them home that night um Ruth's dad waited up on her it it, it seems a little a little far-fetched and and that's not just me that's that's people who know these people who knew them in 1978 family members coworkers friends Okay, and how how long did they have before they were like done their work? So it was right around like eleven p.m., which was when the place closed, right? 
Yeah, so they were taken sometime between 11.20, and we've actually, based on one story we heard, we think possibly as early as 11.50 from someone who says they drove by the restaurant. So it was it was between 11.30 and midnight would be my guess. Between 11.30 and midnight. So let's just say like the, the earliest would be like 11.20. Uh, I would I would guesstimate that in order to close up this restaurant, it might take an hour and a half or so. So getting back to that thought experiment, if someone had shown if, if these people had showed up and convinced them that, hey, we're going to go to a party, you, you have a, a brand new assistant manager. You have two of them who you said that you've spoken to people who knew them who would say, you know, this wasn't they're not ones to just leave their obligations to go to a party. I mean, the party would have to be so amazing that they're like, well, we got about 45 minutes worth of work here, but F that, we're going to go with these guys that we don't know. <laughs> that's like, that's so like irrational to me. So, so yeah, and, and I'm with you on that. And, and that's not, so, so what's weird is that was kind of the Speedway Police Department's original assessment, but, but just that, yeah, that the kids had chosen to do it because they didn't know they were dealing with kids that were going to end up dead. But yeah, that they had just chosen to go off to some party. And then that that became part of the narrative even after they were found killed was that that might have been part of the ruse. But for all the reasons you just mentioned, that just doesn't seem to add up. Yeah. Okay. So you mean it was part of the ruse to get them out? So the ruse by the uh, by the by the killers. By the killers. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's just not giving these like four young adults that much credit. I mean, you have the assistant manager, the assistant manager who was new. She's going to risk that job. She's 20 years old. She's going to risk that job and say, like, yeah, let's all go, guys. I know we've been here for almost, like, we've been here for 95% of our shift, but let's just take off. Yeah, four people at the exact same time deciding that, oh, now now this is the time to do it. Yeah, no way. Yeah, we we probably just have to mop, like, half the floor, count the drawers, and and we can leave. Like, there's... They're not leaving that job. I, I'm, you know, I don't know any of them personally, but they've they've already been there for for that long anyway. Well, and and even to that, if they were going to do that, they likely would have turned the lights off and closed, locked up, to make it look like they had completed their job. Exactly. Yet all the lights are still on, the fans are still on, the back door is ajar. So so no, they they didn't. I can't say anything with 100% certainty, but I feel very confident they didn't leave voluntarily. Okay, so that continues the thought experiment. If they didn't leave voluntarily, how did these people get these four into the into a vehicle or into a couple of vehicles to get them over 20 miles away? Did they hold one of them at gunpoint? Because if you're thinking like maybe this was just a single person... Uh, as part of this thought experiment, did one person hold one of them at gunpoint and threaten the rest to all get in the car after the money was taken? Or was it a couple of people kind of ushering everybody into the car after after the money was stolen? And why? You know, because they saw their faces. They could identify them. And now they're going to take them out as far as, as possible to, to execute them when they could have done it right there in the store. So... This this is where this case gets really interesting, and I'll, and I'll start with what you said there. That's that's a big, always been a big thing for me. If you look at robberies, I mean, we had one. Th- this case often gets compared to a robbery that happened a few years later at a McDonald's, where a manager was shot, um, and it's believed because he had interacted too much with the victims, and they felt or the perpetrators. I'm sorry, uh, he had act- interacted too much with the perpetrators, and 
they felt that he might be able to identify them. So he was shot. Why, yeah, why would you take the risk of loading them in your car? You've got a few stoplights before you hit the highway, a few more stoplights after the highway portion before you hit the, the final country road where they were left. Lots of places for these kids to try to get brave and jump out. Um, it's just a huge risk um, to, to have done that when if the goal was eliminating them as witnesses, you could have done it right then and there. But where this gets really interesting is not only did they take four people, they took a car. Um, but it's a car that most believe all of these people couldn't have fit in. So the assistant manager, Jane Freet, owned a 1974 Chevy Vega. Small two-door hatchback car. Um, and we're talking, most people believe there were two perpetrators, kind of like you said. One, one person is maybe carrying out some activities while the other one is holding a weapon because they know we know they had weapons. They had at least one thirty-eight caliber gun and they had at least one knife. Who knows if they had anything else, brass knuckles or, or anything like that, but but they had they had weapons on them. So we're talking four teenage size individuals and you know, Jane we found was around five six to five eight, so not a not a s- small person. Um, Mark Flemings was a tall boy and then two adults. These people, by everyone's account, are not fitting into a 1974 Chevy Vega. So it's believed there had to have been some other vehicle. But if they had another vehicle at the Burger Chef, why move the Vega? I had a chance to speak with an investigator who had never heard about this case, and I just wanted to bounce some of these things off of her and and get an opinion. And the opinion she came to is very similar to what I think a lot of other people came to. They moved the car to make it look like nobody was at the restaurant. So they could leave, so they could so they could buy time to do whatever they were going to do at that point. Well, that's interesting. That means that they knew what they were going to do with these kids. I'm of the belief, and and you know, on on our podcast, I'll interject my opinions. I'll let people know when it's speculation, um, and, and so I'm, I'm I'm doing that here. My belief is that when they left the restaurant, they didn't necessarily know they were going to kill the kids, but which which becomes then. An interesting question or thought experiment for me is what was the reason they wanted to have them, have control of them, but maybe have them alive? And I don't know whether that comes down to additional money or information. It's kind of some of the stuff we're looking into right now. Maybe just not knowing what to do with them. But uh, I think when, uh, you know, statistically speaking, I think when, when a second location is involved, that's it's really bad for the, uh, for the would-be victim. Yeah, so you look at a lot of, and, and I'm by no means, you know, law enforcement, you know, have tried to go to people who have the experience that I don't have and, and, and have seen these things a lot more often than I have to give their opinions. And, you know, a lot of times you'll see, yeah, if you've got someone who is – a serial murderer or murderer or someone who commits assault. It's just part of their MO or their signature to involve a second crime scene. And we've seen it with robberies as well, but a lot of times too, you'll see with robberies where they'll move a victim, especially back in those days when there were no cell phones, they'll move a victim of the robbery to a location where there was no way for them to contact authorities. And, but it won't necessarily end in murder, you know? So I've, I've thought about that, path as well as but then if that if that was the intention 
I can't see what happened between here and that field in Johnson County that changed their minds and turned it to murder. And it was like the 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 extent of the murder, the the severity of the murder, um, getting bludgeoned with a with a chain, right? I think um, one of them uh, one of them was bludgeoned with a chain, right? So that's mentioned in early reports that it was a chain. Um, we have had one investigator tell us that they don't necessarily believe it was a chain. I think because they didn't see kind of a connecting pattern between the wounds that would indicate a chain, but it was more something like someone was wearing a large ring or a set of brass knuckles or something like that. There was a hard object he was beaten with, but they kind of backed away from the chain. And I think partially just wanting to keep options open um, as to what it could have been. So then if, if you as someone out in the public knows a guy who carries around a set of brass knuckles, let's not discount him as a potential suspect. I just want to clarify that we were talking about Mark Flemons, right? Yes, yes. So Mark Flemons was the one that was was beaten. And then, like you say, a lot of what I think a lot of people would call overkill in, in the shooting Ruth and Daniel three times and the stabbing in the chest of of uh, Jane, there was, there was overkill and there was a desire... Once the act started, there was a desire to make sure they were all dead. Right. And if this is more than one person who's done it, they've all like reached this frenzied level. This is what freaks me out the most about it or what disturbs me the most about it is um, I brought up the chain because you had mentioned the, the, the brass knuckles. Either one of those, like, do you know how, how hard you have to hit somebody with brass knuckles and how many times you have to hit them to kill them? I, I don't know, I, but I can imagine it's a lot. And how hard you have to stab somebody to break the knife? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm glad I can attest to having no idea what it would take, but but you're absolutely right. There was some frenzy, some force, maybe some anger. I mean, we, we don't know, but there was there was something behind those actions. And that's part of what personally leads me away from this robbery gang. And who knows if they could have been on drugs or or whatever, but that didn't seem to be part of their lifestyle. And one of them lives a very quiet life nearby. I, I, I'm really curious about something. It, it, was it believed or is it still believed that um, that the manner that the the two um, victims who were not shot, I, I know the, the woman victim was Jane, um, I forget the man's name, um, but was it believed that they were killed in a different manner because they had run or because the the bullets were gone? Is that the working theory there or was or because use of a knife is a little more personal than use of a gun? No, you're, you're right. There is some people will discuss the idea that they were led to the areas of the field where they were killed and that they were their killings were more more personal for a reason. My my only problem with that, and I think investigators are mostly of the same mindset, is we can't find a connection between those two victims that would have led to a single person or group of people to take to take such personal action against them. So so we tend to to go with the theory of kind of like you said, the gun runs out of bullets. They take off, they're grabbed, and they're killed in whatever manner whoever caught up with them could kill them at that point. 
so you, you're saying that there's no no like there was no romantic connection between those two victims or anything like that. But may, I wonder if there was some kind of connection with uh, one of those victims, like Jane, say, and uh, one of the killers, like a like a former uh, boyfriend or something like that. So those are areas that have been looked into quite a bit, and and some of the major theories uh, do fall along those lines. Not necessarily former lovers, but uh, both Jane Freet and Mark Flemons, who was the boy who was beaten, had older siblings that had that eventually got in some serious trouble for drug trafficking, assault, those kind of things. So there have been theories through the years that one of them or the other was involved in the selling of drugs or may have been a heavy drug user and owed somebody money. We've looked into to both. It seems to be more logical, given his friend group, that would have been Mark Flemons. Not to say that Jane didn't indulge. I mean, from what I hear, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who were teenagers in the 70s looking into this case. And I mean, just about everybody was smoking weed. But yeah, there's there's been a lot of speculation that one of the killers may have had a personal connection to one of them. Uh, but I guess the point I was making earlier is we can't find anyone who would have a personal connection to both of them that would have led to both of them being taken off into the woods, them being killed, and then them coming back and, you know, eliminating Ruth and Daniel just as a means of making sure no witnesses are left behind. Uh, I apologize if you had brought up this name earlier. I don't think you did. Um can you talk a little bit about the confession of uh, Donald Forrester? Yeah, so there are still a lot of people in this area who immediately go to a guy confessed in jail. The cops know who did it. They just couldn't prove it. And so they're they're referring to Donald Forrester. Um, Donald Forrester was a serial kidnapper and rapist who was in prison until just about a month before the Burger Chef murders. And who moved in with his cousin and uncle who lived in the Speedway area when he got out of prison. And so would have been in the area at the time. And the murders take place. It's believed that he was a suspect. Not a suspect. Um, it was believed that he was a name the police were aware of when the murders happened just because he was a known bad actor who lived in the area. Um, and, and had committed violent crimes. But the investigation into him, I think, never really even got off the ground in those early days. And then in February of 1979, he was arrested again for abducting a woman and raping her in a vehicle and went to prison for, I don't have it in front of me, it was either 95 or 99 years, what, what should have definitely been the rest of his life and thankfully turned out to be the rest of his life. But in 1984, a cellmate of his approached a local journalist and said, you need to look into this guy. He knows something about the Burger Chef murders. And so this journalist got a hold of Donald Forrester and convinced Donald to begin to speak to the Marion County Police. And just to back up a little bit, uh, one of you guys had asked me the question earlier about what the investigation was like in the very beginning when the bodies were found. And it was such a jumbled thing. There were five agencies immediately involved in this investigation, from the Speedway Police Department to the FBI, who became involved once the 
victims were missing for 24 hours. It was presumed they had been taken over state lines, so that gives the FBI jurisdiction. The bodies were actually found in Johnson County, Indiana, so the Johnson County Sheriff's Department. Uh, the state police then become involved once it's known they crossed county lines. And then the Marion County Police Department, which is the county that Indianapolis and Speedway are in. So they're all involved from the beginning, but it's the Marion County Police Department that Donald speaks to. And they spend about 18 months between the investigators and this journalist questioning Forrester. And they get him out of Indiana State Prison in Michigan City, which is a known to be a very violent prison. And, and it's known that he was being beaten and abused and was actually asking to be in solitary confinement in that prison. His tale begins that he knows who was involved and he names some names. And the investigation starts into these people and Marion County uh, and Indianapolis Police Department, uh, narcotics units. His story was basically that Jane Freet and maybe just her alone or maybe her and her brother owed drug money and to one of the people involved, and they went to collect, and it turned violent. And it turned violent when Mark Flemons decided to stand up to whoever was there trying to collect from her, and they got physical with him and actually feared that they had already killed him. So they decided to take everybody, load them up, take them to this field, and kill them in the field. It's a lot to get into, and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm on here just pumping our podcast, but it, it really is a lot to get into the twists and turns of, of his confessions. In 1986, he recants his confession. The prosecutor at that time then says, we have nothing to move forward on. So nothing happens for three years. But, but what, what's interesting is this entire 18 months he's talking, he's not in the violent prison. Well, once that stops, he goes back to the violent prison in Michigan City, Indiana. And in 1989, he has the warden again call up the Marion County Police Department. They come and interview him again, and, and he confesses again. And we've actually obtained a recording of that confession. We do play a part of it on our podcast. And there are some major details he gets wrong. For example, the, the wounds that are inflicted to Miss Freach. He only received two stab wounds in the chest, and he mentioned stabbing her in the leg. Mentions a route to the, the field where the, the kids were killed that makes almost no sense to anyone, and you even hear the investigators that are questioning him try to nudge him and correct him to the right even a route that's even feasible to get from point A to point B. A lot of people haven't heard that. We've played it on our podcast. Obviously, that still leaves a lot of people who still haven't heard it. Um, but at this point, I'm, I'm of the opinion that I think he may have known something, and we're trying to look into that. What I'd really like to see is the statements he made to police in 1979 when he was first arrested for rape. But I, I, I think that once he ended up with the Marion County Police, they wanted to get an answer here so bad, and they finally pushed him to the point of saying, look, you've provided us with no physical evidence. Nobody's going to believe you if you don't say you were there. He says, what do I have to lose? I'm already in prison for 99 years. So then it becomes a confession. Right. Okay, so what episode uh, can people hear that audio that you mentioned? So that audio is on our final episode of season one. I believe it's episode 26 of season one. Okay. 
But earlier in the season, uh, episodes, I think, 11 through 13, we we dive into everything but that audio tape confession surrounding Donald Forrester. Well, I got to say, uh, I my hat's off to you. My proverbial hat is off to you, uh, Chris. Your, your podcast is great, uh, Circle City Crime. And uh, yeah, cannot recommend it enough. You've done such uh, an amazing job researching this on your own. Uh, a, a, a crime that is... So, I mean, 41 years? Is that what it's at now? Yeah, it'll be 42 this November. So, yeah, it's a long time. 42 years. Yeah, great work researching uh, and actually uncovering and, and finding details uh, that that you're putting out there to the public. So I cannot, uh, I cannot recommend it. Um, cannot recommend it higher. Well done. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris, for joining us here. And uh, definitely check out... The uh, the 3C podcast, Circle City Crime. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for having me on, guys. Give me the chance to uh, to spread the word. You know, maybe somebody will listen to this. And I think the biggest thing that we, we can impress upon people is this is not solved. If you know anything, you know, now's, now's the time to talk. And where would people reach out to if they do have information about this? So certainly if you have information, contact the Indiana State Police. They're the lead investigators on this case. But if for any reason um, you're not comfortable with that, um, you know, we're, we're fine being an intermediary. You can find us on Facebook as 3C Podcast Indy. Um, and you can email us at 3, that's uh, the word 3 spelled out, T-H-R-E-E, the letter C, pod, at gmail.com. So that's 3CPod at gmail.com.